chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone, she's, he's, they's, and whatever you go by, we are back! Hey everyone, it's Eliza and Janelle here, and we are so excited to be back with a new season of Rom-Com Killjoys. Yeah, we are mixing it up a little bit now that we're back and we've had some time to recharge our creative batteries and think a little deeply about how we want the podcast to be in the future. And we're coming back at you with a a new format, a fresh format, a mini-series. Yep, that's right. Instead of doing monthlies or one-offs, we are going to come at you with a month and a half about long series where we are going to talk about one of our favorite topics when it comes to the romance genre and one that a lot of you have been requesting over time so we're really excited to finally get to really deep dive into this ladies and gentlemen it's happening we're doing regency romance yes grab your bonnets get ready your ampere waisted dresses your waistcoats run through a british countryside (laughs) <laughs> it may or may not have something to do with the release of the second season of Bridgerton. Uh, what? I don't know. Does it? Eliza? No, I Maybe? think the timing is completely random. Um, totally. That was just a coincidence. <laughs> so strange how that happened. Um, the release date of Bridgerton is not in my calendar as an event. We would never respond to current events. That would be absurd. We're talking about the past. Or are we? Or are we? That's are I think we? that's the real question, right? Like we're still so obsessed as a as a culture with these sort of regency romances. And is it because we're obsessed with the past or is it because they're actually about the present? I think that's like an incredibly useful thematic question for us to pursue throughout this series because I cannot tell you how many times rewatching the Uh, cultural objects we're talking about today that I thought of individual TikToks that I have seen about contemporary dating. Mm. I cannot even tell you the resonances that I felt, even though the the cultural objects we're talking about today are respectively 17 and 27 years old. Ah. (laughs) So I know, frightening. Uh, Should we introduce what those objects are so I don't have to describe them in such a clunky way anymore, (laughs) Eliza? Like, what do you think? I think that's a great idea, Janelle. Um, All right, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) so we knew if we were going to do Regency Romance, we obviously had to start things off with the umpire wasted elephant in the room. But the real question was, which of the two most obvious options do we go with? And we decided the best way was to just dive in headfirst, tackle them both at once. We are doing a two for one and talking about Pride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) Too pride, too prejudice, if you will. (laughs) Oh no, that's how we're naming this entire series. Done. Excellent. (laughs) Prider and prejudice. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Too proud, too prejudiced? I don't know. Um, Somebody somebody invent this YouTube series or podcast or whatever the the contemporary equivalent is. (laughs) We're going to work on it. We'll workshop that a bit and get back to you, but it will be starring Vin Diesel. Uh, no, I mean, no one loves Jane Austen more than Vin Diesel, and I'm not even joking. I am sure that man has an entire leather-bound set of these books. 
Like, I have no doubt in my mind. Vin Diesel, show us your Jane Austen. This is the social media content the people demand. All right. We may be getting (laughs) off topic here. Yes, we might. Um, Well, I guess so normally what we would do if you're a long-term listener of the podcast is we would read the Google summary of the film that we are talking about today. But in this case, because we are talking about a miniseries, the 1995 BBC adaptation, and a film, the 2005 Joe Wright adaptation for film. Um, I am going to read both of the Google summaries, and maybe that will um, uh, bring about some interesting contrast Mm. in the two. Mm. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's start with the OG. Some would say the best, but I'm going to withhold my personal opinion because it's a strong one. Uh, Here we go. The Google summary for the 1995 Pride and Prejudice BBC adaptation. Elizabeth Bennett, played by by Jennifer Ely, and her sisters attempt to navigate the world of love and high society in an age where class and money matter. Despite their differences, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, played by Colin Firth, manage to look past social standings and fall in love. All right, there's our BBC adaptation. Now let's talk about the 2005 Joe Wright film. In this adaptation of Jane Austen's beloved novel, Elizabeth Bennet, played by Keira Knightley, lives with her mother, father, and sisters in the English countryside. As the eldest, she faces mounting pressure from her parents to marry. When the outspoken Elizabeth is introduced to the handsome and upper-class Mr. Darcy, played by Matthew McFadden, sparks fly. Although there is obvious chemistry between the two, Darcy's overtly reserved nature threatens the fledgling relationship. All right, Eliza, so those are our Google summaries for both the 1995 and 2005 adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. Um, And that's what they say that they're about, but you know what I'm going to ask. What are they really about? Gosh, Janelle, that is such a weighted question. There's so much literature (laughs) out there about what Pride and Prejudice is about. But I think I'm going to start us off by talking about what the two films are different in what categories the two films are different and how they approach the story. Because I do think that mm. um, the the two versions of the story that we're going to be talking about, one is very British and very BBC, right? The BBC miniseries is understated and a very, very close direct adaptation from the book. Um, and um, the side characters are, I think, quite sort of comical and exaggerated and the main characters are very poised and understated and it's very BBC television in that way and the 2005 Pride and Prejudice the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice while also still a fairly um loyal adaptation of the book although a lot is cut obviously because of time is more Americanized is more Hollywoodized right it is more dramatic there are some um some liberties taken from moments in the book in order to make those scenes more dramatic, the most obvious of which is, of course, the um, proposal in the rain rather than just, like, in a sitting room. Um, and there are much more heightened emotions and, I think, a more actually sort of realism style of acting as opposed to a sort of theater style of acting, although because it's Hollywoodized, it sort of takes the realism into the dramatic on the other side of it. Um, and so these are two products that are telling the same story, but one is trying to do it more subdued and one is trying to do it more dramatically. And so you sort of fall to either side of the book as the median. 
Yeah, I think that those are all observations that I had too, Eliza. I really thought about, I mean, admittedly, when I was I was teaching this week my students about mise-en-scene. Mm. What does that mean, Dr. Walker? Uh, mise-en-scene is the total um, orchestration of a theatrical scene, right? So it's everything that is not in the script or the book in this case. And one of the things I was thinking about, to your point, is that the BBC adaptation is very much invested in the literature right, of Jane Austen, the language, mm-hmm. right, the wordplay, the wit, and all of that we should note, you know, as you and I often do, the kind of material reality of film and TV production. I mean, this is funded by BBC, right, so UK state television, right, there's a very strong sense of kind of British heritage mm-hmm. being supported here. It is very much about Jane Austen, and we love that, we love Jane Austen. But personally, I think I prefer the Joe Wright film for all the reasons you just talked about, it's sort of like Hollywood style is so much more invested in the mise-en-scene mm-hmm. of everything else that's not on the page, right? The famous um, hand uh, grip <laughs> of Matthew McFadden, <sighs> the rain, the music, the lighting, the frankly offensively anachronistic costumes. I mean, it's all <laughs> telling you like a really interesting story that is about more about mood and feel and, and what's between the lines and the literature itself. Yes. So really, I think, honestly, it depends on what you're looking for. Like, they're both so great in different ways. But personally, I'm a mise-en-scene girl, so I love the Joe Wright. Look, Janelle, we know that we have a few friends who are going to crucify us for the stances that we're taking. I know, and I'm in sorry. In this week's episode. <laughs> we know it, guys. <laughs> You can yell at us in the comments and in person, but we know it's coming. We won't be shocked. Um, However, I have to agree with you. I have so much love for the Kira Knightley version. And it's really interesting because when it first came out, I remember watching it and liking it, but being a little sort of eye-rolly at some of the bigger Hollywood things. But every time I watch it, I like it more because I really do think that every aspect of the movie tells the story so well in a way that as a filmmaker, I really appreciate And as a lover of romance, I really appreciate because tonally you understand what's happening so strongly in every moment. The BBC version, which is also wonderful, to be clear, (laughs) picking a favorite of two great things is not an insult. (laughs) No. That being said... Because I think in some ways, because they have the opportunity to really use the full text of the book, because they've got six hours to play with rather than just under two, there's a lot less time and effort put into how to tell the story beyond the language being used. Um, And partly that's also a budgetary thing, right? Like, I mean, this is, you know, state-sponsored television that has, like, a decent budget, but we're talking the 90s, we're talking, you know, a time when they're sort of churning out these historical dramas as you know sort of the backbone of bbc fictional television but they're using all of the same sets and they're using all the same costumes right like they don't have a big budget to remake everything every time um and so they use what's there but one of the things that i was noticing as i rewatched both of them this week was that the sets are very non-instructive like the sets don't tell you a lot about what is happening in the scene And in the Keira Knightley version, they really do. They're really trying to make you understand people's social standing, people's mood, everything based on sort of the visuals around them. And one of the things that stood out to me was the ball at Meryton, which is the first time that we meet Bingley and Darcy and the girls get the sort of basic interactions that are going to inform everything that happens afterwards. 
versus the next time we're in a dance setting, which is the ball at Netherfield, Bingley's home. In the Kira Knightley version, these are very different parties. One is a country town dance, right? Like people are dressed well, but they're not dressed up. The girls are wearing evening dresses, but there's not feathers in their hair. They're not in their finest clothes. The doors are open to the outside world. They're all sort of packed into like essentially a giant gymnasium, you know, right? Like it's a local inexpensive party that everyone in the community is coming together to interact with. And then you go to the ball at Netherfield and you're in a palace, but it's not just the building. It's the food is sumptuous. Everyone has jewels and feathers and the most elaborate dresses they wear for the whole film. The music is richer. You see the large band. There's multiple rooms that they're walking through. I mean, the decorations are so elaborate. Like you understand that this is a step above the sort of formal interactions that the girls are normally having. It's not necessarily outside of the realm of the class that they live in, but this is not their usual party. And you also understand at the first one, at the the Meriton Town Ball, that this is not the usual party for Darcy and Bingley and the sisters. And I didn't get that sense in the BBC one. They just were two dance scenes. So you really have to listen to the dialogue to understand what everyone's feeling in those moments, as opposed to being able to immediately look and be like, oh, they're out of their comfort zone. Yeah, I think that this brings up some really interesting issues that extend to the whole of the Regency uh, romance genre for me that are, are that, that are interesting to bring up, right? Because what you're addressing is that there's a kind of like a cultural competency with British class mm-hmm. issues um, that is assumed by the BBC drama, which makes sense, right? I mean, they are um, broadcasting to a British audience. Mm-hmm. That's their assumption. And they are assuming that a viewer is going to listen to the dialogue and understand right away without being shown necessarily the class differences um, or being shown the class differences in a subtle way that would not necessarily be clear to someone like me who's not super tuned in to mm-hmm. all of that history. But the Joe Wright adaptation is making a very clear um Point, something that might even seem too obvious to a British viewer. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what's interesting about the Regency genre in general, especially for American or otherwise non-British consumers, is that we're thinking about a very short, very specific, in terms of socio-political reality <laughs> time, right? Yes. We're talking about what was essentially a decade, a little less than a decade. Mm-hmm. Um And there is this obsessive interest in the details, you know, the way people acted, the way they dressed their hair, the the various social strata of it all. But in the end, I think what most consumers who are not, you know, deeply steeped in that history in a way that maybe someone um, educated in the British system or inheriting that knowledge through their Britishness would have is just this kind of delight in the stuffiness of it all and the vague Britishness of it all. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And the kind of broad shapes of that class difference rather than all the little, I don't know, it's sort of a weird thing, right? Because like, we, I don't necessarily understand all of the particulars of, like I watched a YouTube video um, about Mr. Wickham um, running off with Lydia uh, and being very uh, confused about all of the details about like, why is that bad? And what does that mean for their class? And what are his motivations in doing this, right? Like all of that, that little 
business mm-hmm. uh, is is very historical and was very steeped in Jane Austen's time. And I'm not super aware of it all. But what am I excited by? Like the titillation of him scooping her up and taking her away to Scotland. Mm-hmm. So if you can show me like what all of that means in terms of class through the visuals, that works for me. But through the dialogue alone, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get the same titillation. Absolutely. And I think I think maybe this is a moment for us to briefly put aside our film criticism hats and put on our literary criticism hats and talk about mm-hmm. Austen in general, specifically in Pride and Prejudice, but any Jane Austen, and what purpose literarily her books served when she wrote them and when they were first published, because they are very specifically about this very specific time, and they are social commentary, right? Like, I think so often now we consume them as romance, which they are, but they were specifically about this time and this social strata and about these rules. And they are a a parody, a, a parody and a commentary on that moment. And so they were written for people who knew these rules. So the books don't need to spell them out necessarily, because the people who are reading them at the time they're being written know what the rules are and understand inherently what it means that Mr. Darcy owns a home, but his title is Mr. rather than like Lord, or what it means that the Bennett sisters aren't going to inherit anything because their father didn't have any sons. And so his estate is entailed onto a cousin, right? Like those things are not common words that we use now, but at the time it was very easily understood by the readers. It's a very similar thing that we've talked about before, I think, with Shakespeare adaptations. And we even talked about this a little bit when we did our Cyrano de Bergerac week. Mm. Um, or month, rather. Uh, that that oftentimes these sort of adaptations have to use mise-en-scene and like film storytelling techniques to fill those gaps, right? To give us the impression of the idea rather than the, the original idea itself, which is, to me, as a, as a historian of... Uh, uh, for lack of better terminology, entertainment, I find that extremely interesting. Like, why do we carry these things forward if we have to translate them so much? Right. Like, one of the things that stands out to me looking at these two adaptations of Pride and Prejudice is the Wickham saga, right? And for those who are, are less familiar th- with the story than we are, um, Elizabeth Bennett is one of five sisters. Her youngest sister runs off with a man who's in the military who is gentlemanly, but not a gentleman, meaning like he does not come from a titled family, um, but he comes from a family that has enough respect that he can run in those circles. Um, and she runs off with him ostensibly to get married. But the actual problem in the book comes from the fact that it's clear that they are not going to get married. Um, at the time, you could run off to Scotland where you could essentially get a marriage license overnight and get married, much like running off to Vegas now. Um, and so she runs off and theoretically to get married which is a little scandalous but at least she'll be married but then it becomes clear that they're in london not scotland which means basically that they're shacking up somewhere right like what's happened Mm -hmm. is her family has become aware that her teenage sister is sleeping with a guy who seems to have no intention of saving her reputation by marrying her because she doesn't have any money so he wouldn't gain anything from marrying her Now, again, at the time, the readers of this book originally would have immediately understood all of those intricacies, right? Like that this man is below the status of her family, but because she's the fifth sister, she probably doesn't have a lot of prospects anyway. So maybe he sort of status-wise is equivalent to her, but it definitely still needs to all be appropriate and above board. And so the fact that it's not and he's just, you know, having sex with her and ruining her means that now they won't be able to marry her to anyone and it might affect the sisters, right? Like it's very complicated, but... 
very easily understood if you're familiar with the social, you know, rules of that time. Now, the two movies, the miniseries, the BBC miniseries, does not, I think, over-dramatize this. What they do do, which is interesting, is that you see more of Wickham and Lydia um, running off and then being saved by Darcy. But it's all very, like clean you know you see them in an apartment in london but there's no indication that they have a physical intimate relationship but like they definitely do the whole point is that this guy has definitely slept with lydia at this point and the show just sort of sweeps that under the rug so it can be more appropriate and what the um 2005 pride and prejudice does is rather than go into the the sexual part of that they show a much more intense reaction from the remaining Bennett family. There's a scene where Lizzie gets the news and she's trying to tell her aunt and uncle and Darcy what happened and she's crying so hard that she can't get it out. And there's this lovely moment where she comes into the room, starts to speak, is overwhelmed and runs out of the room again. Which, fun side note, was actually an addition to the script added by Emma Thompson. They had her do a little they had her do a little beef up of the script and she was like, what if Elizabeth can't even get the words out and has to leave the room and come back in? And I think that yes, it's a dramatic part that's not directly from the book, but it helps you to understand how overcome she is, right? Like she's so upset and so panicked and so mortified and sad for her sister and scared that she's, I mean, she's just crying. And I think that that helps the audience understand, even if you don't know what exactly is going on, that it's bad. Yeah. And and I think there's something similar that kind of goes on. Um, we we haven't exactly touched on the difference in the costumes between the two mm-hmm. adaptations, but I think that that is a really interesting place to drill into places where they are te- they are showing us rather than telling us things mm-hmm. in the same way that that moment shows us something rather than tells us about it. Um, that like I have always struggled in engaging with Jane Austen's work, understanding the the relative levels of wealth of the people involved mm. because of course you know with the bennett family we are we are told that they are of lower standing than many of the people they socialize with but that by no means means that they're poor right mm-hmm. that by no means means that they are working the fields or are the kind of proletariat of their time or whatever right so what i appreciate in the joe wright adaptation similarly you know they they make the Bennett family dress differently, right? They have this subtle difference in their clothing looking a little bit older or less intricate. Uh, the colors are sort of different. You know, like I noticed in the 1995 BBC adaptation, for the most part, I mean, the Bennett girls are wearing the same attire as everyone else, mm-hmm. except for in rare circumstances. And part of that is like you're saying, like the BBC is just reusing a lot of the same costumes <laughs> because I get it, state-run TV. Um but I think that that's 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 a really uh, interesting place where where a lot of Regency fans get excited in this kind of storytelling, right? Like, what is going on with the costumes, and how are the costumes telling the story? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of that is beefing up our kind of cultural competency of this world that Jane Austen offers us uh, two hundred years ago. Yeah, I definitely. We're going to talk about costumes a lot over the next several weeks because, as those of you who have been following along know, I have many costume thoughts all of the time, specifically about historical <laughs> dress. Um, but I think that with the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, you start to see a transition in the way Hollywood does like costumes uh, for historical pieces, specifically, you know, sort of eight, um, 19th century historical movies um that this is the beginning of the transition that i think now in the 2020s we've sort of hit this peak of where 
things are not necessarily historically inaccurate, but very beefed up. There are slightly brighter colors mm. or they're the extremes of what would have been popular at the time, either the extreme fashion or the extreme not fashion, um, to a way that you might be able to take an individual costume and say, like, yes, this could be a historical piece. Like, it's not technically inaccurate, but the the overall costume collection might not actually be representative because it's much more for storytelling purposes than for accuracy purposes. And I think we're going to talk about a few things Mm -hmm. in the coming weeks that take that and do it to the extreme historical accuracy version and the extreme not accuracy version. And we'll get to that. Um, But I think you're starting to see that movement here where there are dresses on Lizzie that, I mean, they're the right shape and they're colors that would have existed then, but they probably are more drab than something she would have worn. Or you see, you know, mm-hmm. outfits on some of the wealthier characters that are more extreme versions than that, what they would have worn in those moments, but that really do help to tell the story. With the BBC version, any single dress that you grab is going to be like, this is a historically accurate period piece. But there's not as much thought given to the specific details on how they read to the audience what they tell you about the character who's wearing them. It's much more like, oh, this dress fits this actress, so let's put her in it. Um, And then I do have to mention the one huge thing that bothers me anytime I watch the miniseries um, costume-wise, which is that all of the girls are just straight up wearing 90s bras. There is not a single woman in that movie who is wearing any form of stay or corset. You can see two separate boobs with a dent in the middle that are held high but not pushed like they are just straight up wearing underwire bras under those dresses and i do find it distracting as someone who cares about the costuming but the rest of it is very accurate it's just the underwear that's the problem you know and that phrase is an interesting thing that i was obsessed with watching the 1995 uh miniseries um which is thinking about all of these women wearing these early 19th century costumes, but being presumably like 1990s women in mm-hmm. London, right? And and I wonder how they related to the issues of these characters at that time, because um, I, I the 90s in England are kind of a fascinating period to me, particularly, <laughs> um, mostly because there are some playwrights who I really love who were big at the time. But but just so to give you the audience some context, at this time in, in England, the sort of like high-end art scene had a nickname called Cruel Britannia. Cruel Britannia, right? Like mean, um, brash, dark. You know, this is the era of train spotting and extremely violent theater, pretty dark music. You know, we're coming out of the Margaret Thatcher period. And we also have, you know, a good strain of 90s style sort of like riot girl feminism. This is the era that produces the Spice Girls and Girl Power. And I really got interested in thinking about how Jane Austen's proto-feminism, if we want to call it that, connects to that period of the 90s and definitely how it connects to 2005 and and how the story is reorienting to center Lizzie, uh, Keira Knightley's performance as Lizzie. And then also more broadly, I wonder about how the, the, again, the sort of like ostensibly proto-feminism of Jane Austen maps onto time memorial like why do we grasp onto these stories as being sort of girl powery very feminist i mean excellent points all around i do think it's worth talking about is lizzie bennett a modern feminist hero because i think that so often that's how she's portrayed now like lizzie's smart and it's a very 90s feminist hero right it's like she reads she's the belle of the disney princesses not like her sisters who are the dumb Ariels. um and do we think that's an actual like 
a good interpretation of book Lizzie Bennet? Um, no, I, I actually totally agree. Like, I think that another big distinction between the two and the reason why I prefer the Joe Wright version is that there is a sort of not like other girls quality to Jennifer Ely's performance as uh, Lizzie in the 1995. And also, to be perfectly frank, interestingly enough, even though she's doing the I'm not like other girls thing, the narrative is much more kind of broad in its lens, by which I mean that the focus of the story is not coming to us through Lizzie's eyes so much, right? We're seeing Mm. a very kind of like pastoral landscape view of all of these characters. Um, Darcy and Lizzie are at the center of it, but we see all of these characters interacting. Whereas I think narratively in the way that it's shot, the Joe Wright film is really putting us in Lizzie's place. We are meant to Mm -hmm. empathize with her in every moment. And Darcy is meant to be sort of a mystery to us in some ways, Mm -hmm. which I find very compelling. Yeah, I definitely think for the romance of it, it works better when you're really seeing everything from Lizzie's mind because you're really getting those sort of highs and lows of what she's experiencing, which I think are a little more leveled out in the BBC. That being said, I am going to disagree with you because I think that the the Joe Wright version does, if not as much, possibly more of the not like other girls thing with Lizzie. Um, one of the ways that they do this, actually, which I, I really enjoy in the movie, this isn't necessarily a criticism, but it is, I think, a liberty that they take, is her relationship with Mr. Bennett is quite different in the two adaptations. They make Mr. Bennett much smarter in the 2005, in the Joe Wright version. He is the smart guy in the family, and Lizzie's the smart girl in the family, and so they have an unspoken understanding that they get what's going on more often than the rest of the family. Sometimes Jane, as the oldest sister, also gets to kind of be in their little club, but like mostly it's the Lizzie and dad show. And you get all these moments where they're sort of like, oh, our family is definitely mortifying us and only the two of us can see it because they're all too dumb to notice. Whereas in the BBC version, he's just as clueless as the rest of the family, you know, and he's sort of, he's constantly making comments about how dumb his daughters are, but in a way that doesn't reflect well on him and makes him not nasty, but a little sort of a little bitchy and a little weird. And you're like, why are you talking about this publicly? And I know you think it's funny, but you're not making any good points. And she sort of ignores him the same way she ignores her mother, which, you know, I mean, again, gives her that sort of superiority over the family. But it's it feels less to me like, look at these dumb girls versus this smart girl who can talk to the men kind of vibe that I do think the 2005 one gets sometimes where you're like, why do none of the other women get to have these moments with the dad? Yeah, that is so true. And I mean, in general, there's also there's also a, a, a flaw with the Jane Austen narratives in general. OK, guys. All right. I hear you. You're already yelling like I understand. But um it is interesting to me that in addition to the fact that Lizzie has this um, not like other girls quality, and like you said, in the 2005, she does indeed have this relationship with her father that makes it seem like, oh, they're, she's just so much better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrative is so unquestioning of the value of marriage mm-hmm. to these women. And admittedly, that was the reality of the moment, right? You had to marry as a woman to survive financially. You did not have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. However, the wealth of Mr. Darcy is seen as an equal component to his character. And is that the most empowering narrative? No. And I, and, and I think that what's interesting to me 
is that the actual story being told in Jane Austen's books sometimes gets conflated with the story of Jane Austen herself, who we know never married and wrote in secret. Um, I have been to her grave in uh, Winchester, England, and very interestingly on her gravestone, while she has a place of high honor in the cathedral there, her gravestone does not mention that she's a writer. It just says that she was beloved by her family and especially of her father. Right? So there's there's something really interesting, I think, about the ways in which Jane Austen as a figure gets mapped onto Lizzie in ways that makes Lizzie maybe seem superficially more feminist than she is. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. And it's interesting because this is a pattern I've noticed with several female authors, pre-20th century female authors, where their leads get conflated with them and people search for hidden meaning or messages about the author's life in the way their leads are depicted. Specifically, I'm thinking of Joe March and Louisa May Alcott. But I, there are other examples, too, where mm. you hear people talking about it and you're like, this could actually just be a fictional character. Like, it doesn't have to be an exact stand-in for the author. Um, obviously, people write what they know, and certainly in those examples, they, they are based on the realities of the lives of the authors, but like, there are fictional parts of it too, and you will never be able to know exactly where that line gets drawn between what's based on reality and what's based on imagination. And so to try to be like, no, 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 this is happening because the author actually thought this about marriage, and that's why she secretly has... Sometimes you have to take a step back and like take the conspiracy hat off. Right. Um, and I definitely see that a lot with the um, the Austin conversations sometimes. I think that Lizzie is is meant to be a stand-in for the every woman at the time in a lot of ways. And the mm. every woman for, you know, a, a upper middle class life, right? Like we're talking about someone who still exists in, in the circles of the gentry, if not necessarily the aristocracy. But for Jane Austen's experience, you know, this kind of like wealthy but not too wealthy English existence, I think that actually Lizzie is less the smartest and most modern and most, you know, feminist icony of the bunch than we like to think she is, and more just sort of like an intelligent woman living in the time that she lives in and understanding the rules that apply to her and trying to find the best way around them. You know, right? Like she's not conniving and trying to get the richest husband. In fact, at the beginning, she is attracted to Wickham, who, as I discussed before, is a fairly low on the ladder option for one of the girls in this family to marry. But she is looking Mm -hmm. for two things, happiness and comfort. And there are a lot of conversations in the book about, like, what do you sacrifice in order to have lasting comfort? Meaning, you know, knowing you'll have a roof over your head, knowing you'll be still accepted into society, right? Like, um, there's the entire conversation about whether or not she should marry Mr. Collins. And then when her friend does, when Charlotte does marry Mr. Collins, she's like, look, I'm not in love with him, but he's offering me a good life and he's not a cruel man. And it's a step up for me to marry him. Like, why would I not take this? And Lizzie herself is like, you know, that's not a bad point. (laughs) Like I didn't want to marry Collins, but there are a lot of arguments for why one would. And so I don't think we're necessarily supposed to see her as like so much smarter than Charlotte or so much above it, more above it all than Charlotte or so much more romantic than Charlotte. They're just making different options of the options provided to them. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you do a deep dive into thinking about the structure of the story in general, it's not like Austin is trying to make us think that Lizzie is, you know, to your point, this like Mary Sue 
perfect person. In fact, the title of the book itself alludes to the flaws in both her and Mr. Darcy. They are both guilty of pride and they are both guilty of prejudice. And I think that that's a, that's a part of maybe the, the story and the takeaway from the story that you're supposed to have that gets lost in the storytelling when we are in such a rush, like you said, to make Lizzie Bennet into a feminist hero. And I don't know, maybe that's an interesting challenge for people adapting the story in the future is to, to take a step back from Lizzie and think more about the story, right? Like, what if Lizzie wasn't a feminist hero? What if she was just a girl trying to figure it out? Like, one of the things I was thinking about while I was watching both of these is I kept thinking about this discussion on TikTok about red flags. This is a constant discussion about whether you see a red flag and you run or you should ignore red flags at first because they they you could just, you know, be missing something. I mean, I really thought about Pride and Prejudice there. That, like, honestly... For both Lizzie and uh, Mr. Darcy, them running into each other, each gave the other pretty strong red flags at various points, right? But but they they keep kind of being drawn to each other and they keep like mining away at this like superficial um, facade that they both have when they're engaging in public. And they understand each other a little bit better. When they have a more well-rounded view of each other, they're able to fall in love. And that part of the story, I think, of course, is extremely romantic. And it is the thing that we can kind of keep holding on to, right? That like, yeah, okay, so Lizzie's not this like badass feminist chick who's saying like, whatever, I don't need this guy. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just like say red flag. No, thank you, sir. No, she's complicated. You know, she sees the red flags and she thinks like, probably not. Like, I don't think I like this guy. But eventually she comes around to maybe I was wrong. And I think that that's like an interesting, (laughs) it's kind of an interesting way to think that Lizzie's not so different from all of us average Janes. This is one of the places where translating it to modern dating is hard because we are so in a time period now of like, if there's a red flag, just walk away. Like, you don't need him. That's not true then. Lizzie did need him, right? Like, these women need Mm -hmm. to marry and they need to marry at least decently well in order to be able to continue to live their lives. And so the red flag conversation while you still shouldn't marry someone who's like actively abusive becomes a a question of like, what did the red flag actually mean? And I think it's worth, you know, you talked about how the book is pride and prejudice and both of them are prideful and both of them are prejudiced. I think it's worth pointing out that prejudice in this context doesn't mean how we necessarily think of it today of like, you know, being prejudiced against someone's class or against someone's race. It's more a, a kind of like a first impression, which in fact was the original name for the book was first impressions. Mm-hmm. And the point is not that he's prejudiced against her because she's poor, but he's prejudiced against her because of his first impression of her, which is that she is poorer than him. She is not of a high enough social class to be like a really attractive option to him. And her family makes her a much less attractive option to him. And then he holds on to that for a while and behaves accordingly. And based on the way he behaves to her, she becomes prejudiced against him because she believes that he's, you know, etc. And so those those red flags, the, the story is not about dismissing the red flags, but about sort of getting beneath them and finding out what's actually going on. And I think what makes this a romance that people keep coming back to is a twofold thing with Darcy, which is one, that he's not what he first appears, right? Like there's the very sort of classic romance thing of like, he seems mean and in the end he's nice, but also there's the classic romance thing of he evolves. And I think both of them find out more about what they're really like in person and also learn from one another and adjust accordingly. And that is like the most romantic thing you can have happen in a relationship, right? It's the it's the I can fix him urge, but not in a way that you get someone who's actually truly broken and then you fix them, but that you get someone who like 
still is living a life and can learn and develop and you find a way that you can do that along with them. And so I think that's where the the modern understanding of the romance still works. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that understanding in, in many ways was Jane Austen's as well. You know, I was not not in so many particular ways, right? But there was still that sense of, no, this is going to be a very good marriage, not just a sensible match, but also a very good marriage and a good partnership for all the reasons that you just said. I was really struck by looking at some, you know, forum posts when I was uh, preparing for this episode, and, and folks were really remarking upon Jane Austen's uncanny ability to observe people. She was a reserved person, we know this, right? And she was, she was, she was a keen observer of human behavior. And I think much like Shakespeare, that's why her stories sort of persist and why they connect people is that at the core of them, strip away the class elements, you know, strip away the very particular British culture container for it. She gets at something very keen about human relationships. Like you were saying, you know, the idea that people can evolve and we can too, you know, that we can evolve together. And I think that's, very powerful and very romantic. And, you know, Jane Austen, Jane Austen isn't the sole reason for the Regency, but basically she is. <laughs> and so while it has all these trappings, I think ultimately it's those emotional cores that keep people coming back. Yeah. While we're on the romance, though, I do think if we're going to talk BBC miniseries versus 2005 movie, we have to talk about the romance in both. And I say this knowing yeah. that this is the part that's going to get us in trouble, Janelle. I love Colin Firth. Colin Firth is wonderful. I, and look, part of this is that, like we said before, the 2005 movie is more Hollywood, right? Everything's heightened. Everything's a little more dramatic. Everything's a little sexier. And as such, I find the romance between Lizzie and Darcy sexier. And it's not just because of, like, the specifically romantic scenes, but I think the movie is performed and filmed in such a way that in every scene, the two of them feel magnetically drawn to each other. Whether it's drawn to each other to fight or drawn to each other to be allies, there are all of these scenes where someone says something and the two of them look at each other and you understand that they understand what the other is thinking. Or at least, you know, right, like, there's this sort of... Much the way I said that Lizzie and her father get each other in a way the rest of the family is not supposed to, Lizzie and Darcy get each other even before Lizzie realizes that's what's going on, right? Like, she understands that she should be mortified by the actions of her family long before he insults them to her face. Yes, when that happens, she then has to, you know, defend her family out of honor. But, like, she's not actually shocked by anything he's saying there because she's seen his reactions and she's understood them. When they're at, um, you know, um, why can't I think of it? When, when they're with his aunt, with Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and they're having all these conversations that are very measured in what they're talking about. They both are having these like additional eye conversations beyond that, that you leads to the proposal in a way that you are not as surprised by it because you've seen that he's so physically drawn to her and, and I, I like it better. And I agree with you, Eliza. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. And I have a, like, firm analysis as to why this is, right? Like, I do think, if we think about the historical and cultural context in which both of these films were made, you know, they were made only 10 years apart, but a mm -hmm. lot changed between 1995 <laughs> and 2005. Holy smokes. You're talking about maybe the most progressive period for technology in the history of the planet. I mean, wow. Okay. Um, 
And I think part of that, as we've touched on in earlier episodes, was what we call the great crisis of masculinity, which happened around the millennium. Um, And there's a lot of reasons why that occurred. We've talked about it before. A lot of it has to do with traditional forms of labor falling away to more technologically based forms of labor. But let's forget that for now. Let's just look at the fact that Colin Firth's Darcy, he is a stern man, as the uh, Thirst Aid Kit podcast would say, right? And I think there was a time when a stern man who turns out to be a good man at his core was a very appealing figure, right? He has a clear... His appeal is not that he um, is such a romantic, but that he is a good man who knows what he's doing. And and there is something very appealing to that in a period where traditional norms of masculinity are intact. However, I think why Matthew McFadden's um, version of Darcy appeals especially to us, Eliza, and the generation we came from, is that he is post-crisis of masculinity. So what we see, as you point out, is that vulnerability in him. Those are the moments where he's appealing, not in his moments of strength, but in his moments of weakness when he proposes to her and you see his entire face fall apart when she rejects him. I mean, that is when you just fall in love with him. The the hand grip, famously, um, that is a moment of vulnerability where we're seeing him at fault. You know, the, the I love the line where he says, I have not, I don't have the special talent for socializing with people I have never met before. And you see genuine concern on his face. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm awkward. I'm so sorry. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing to behold. And it feels much more modern. Yeah, you, you have absolutely nailed it. You have put it into words, Janelle. You know, I think the Colin Firth Darcy is still an extension of that kind of 80s, early 90s macho man Hollywood type, right? Like, you know, you, you in the 80s, you get all these like Arnold Schwarzeneggers and Bruce Willis's and whatever. And in the 90s, while that is softened and you have less of the like guy in the white tank top, you still have this sort of like the lead man has to be a little stern and straight backed and solid and can't be as emotionally compromised by what's going on around him. But as we've discussed time and time again, by the 2000s, we get the emo sad boy and Mm-hmm. Matthew McFadden's Darcy mm-hmm. is definitely the, you know, Regency stoic version of the emo sad boy, right? Like he's so, yes. as I said, physically drawn to her. And that moment that you're talking about where she's like, perhaps you should practice, you know, when he says, I don't have the um, the, the talent of conversing well with others. In the Colin Firth version, you sort of get an acknowledgement from him like, mm, that is a good point. And in the 2005, she's teasing him and he's mortified that she's right. Yeah. Right? Like, she's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I have a good barb for this. Perhaps you should practice. And he's like, fuck. She totally nailed me in one on that one. And it shows on his face. And so the moment's much more joyous as an audience member to watch than I find it in the BBC version where you're just like, okay, this was like a solid conversation. And good Lord, it's just, I mean, what do you expect from the BBC? But it's just so goddamn British. And it's just, you know, I love British culture. I am obsessed with England. I love London. It's my favorite city in the world. But good Lord, in terms of romance, like there is a place where Hollywood has really helped them out. Well, I also, (laughs) one of the things that genuinely bothers me in the BBC, which is surprising that this is where the bother comes from, is it is so faithful to the book. And here's what I mean by that before anyone yells. They take scenes as they're written in the book and then have those lines read by the actors and then add nothing. However, in the book, there are frequently paragraphs of text before and after dialogue 
alluding to conversation that is happening without giving you the exact dialogue, right? Like it will be like, and Elizabeth and Darcy exchanged pleasantries and he asked after her family a couple of times showing that he was a little distracted. And then it gets into the specific dialogue and then it's like, well, and then they exchanged pleasantries to say goodbye and he left quickly. But you don't have the exact words for that. And the BBC version doesn't write in a lot to fill in those gaps. It's not yeah. a particularly good script. And so you get these scenes that begin and end quite awkwardly. And it's that very British sort of, oh, mm, mm-hmm, 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 yes. And then they all leave the room. Except, and like, on a certain level, it's, bless you, on a certain level, it's just more British in the way that it is performed, um, as opposed to the movie version, which is more American. But I also think that these are people whose entire lives revolve around this very particular social dance. And regardless of what strata of this social hemisphere they're in, they're good at it because these are smart people who this is their entire life. So even when they're awkward, they know how to have a conversation. And Mm. I think there are times in the BBC version where it feels like they don't, both for the Bennets and for the, the Bingleys and the Darcys of the world, where they're all sort of so awkward that they just don't say anything. And I find myself thinking, I don't think that's what this would have been like, because these people's whole world is about being able to fake social niceties, even in moments that are uncomfortable. Whereas in the movie version in the 2005, they write in those bits of dialogue that are missing from the book. And now they may not be completely period accurate or they may not be exactly what was going on in Jane Austen's head but cinematically the scenes are stronger because they have a clear beginning of a conversation and a clear end of a conversation and they give them some room to build into things in a way that makes everyone seem just a little sharper and a little smarter the scene when Lizzie is visiting the Bingleys and is talking to Caroline and to Darcy and they're just exchanging these sort of hidden insults back and forth Those scenes are so strong in the Keira Knightley version because they write in the in-between moments that don't quite make it into the book, but that are necessary to sort of explain like why they're sitting, where they're sitting in the room and why someone comes in or out of the room at the moments they do. And they just feel smart and and sharp and quick-witted and then the scene ends at exactly the right moment there's none of that sort of sitting around and and awkwardly smiling at each other which i at least personally find very off-putting to watch i'm sorry guys there are so many 1995 stands out there and we see you and we recognize you and you are valid um but you're wrong we just yeah we just um in a very regency manner we just politely disagree from across the room and we'll talk about you behind our fans Uh, this is the time every week, uh, I mean, not every week, I guess, whenever we do the podcast, <laughs> where we thank our patrons on Patreon, and uh, especially our romantic leads who are Bob, Esther, Ian, Trey, and Melissa. We love you much. Um, and uh, since we're doing a new sort of situation, we're not doing our monthly themes as we normally do. We're shifting our Patreon uh, benefits to include picking a special episode at the end of this series coming at you soon. Yeah, so you can help us decide what movies we're going to talk about if you go and join our Patreon for as little as $1 a month, just $12 a year, and you can help us to keep this going. We are still going strong, folks, and we love any support from you guys. You can also support us by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Comment on our posts there. Let us know what you liked about the episode, what you didn't. Um, and also you can buy merch at our merch shop, uh, which is romcomkilljoys.threadless.com. You can find the link on our link tree. 
Um, so Eliza, in some ways, the 2005 adaptation is a supplement to the 1995 adaptations. This is a bit of a weird conversation, but do you have any antidotes or supplements for us this, uh, this show? Janelle, here's my problem. I have too many supplements for us. <laughs> Figuring out what supplements I'm going to provide each week of this series is going to take more brain power than I think anything else. That being said, we talked a lot today about the sort of class struggles that are inherent in Pride and Prejudice and how they don't necessarily translate to today. One of the things I love with the internet being the way it is, is that there are content creators everywhere talking about their very specific niche areas of interest. And if you go onto YouTube, there's a whole like genre of content creators who are talking about deep dives into Jane Austen and Regency romance, and they're all great. So I'm going to suggest two videos that if you're curious about the specific sort of financial and aristocratic machinations of Pride and Prejudice, these videos I find very interesting and very helpful in understanding that. The first one is by a content creator named Dr. Octavia Cox, uh, who is a literature professor, and the video is called What Class Are the Bingleys? Caroline mm. Bingley and the Gentry. Um, and it talks about specifically the Bingleys and the Bingley family, which in the books and the BBC version are Mr. Bingley as the head of the family and then his one married sister and his one unmarried sister. And about the fact that they clearly are quite wealthy and clearly consider themselves to be quite high up. But the fact that he does not actually own property, the whole point of the book is that he is renting Netherfield Park, means that he is not landed gentry. And what mm. does that mean for the social class? And are they social climbers? Are they old money? Etc. It's really interesting. The other one is a creator who I really enjoy. Her name's Ellie Dashwood. I don't think that's a real name, but that's her YouTube name. Um, and she's got a whole bunch of videos that are Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen themed that are all worth a look. Uh, but one that I think is really interesting is, does, did Lizzie really love Mr. Darcy? Regency era companionate marriage in Pride and Prejudice. And it's about what we were talking about earlier about like the need to marry and do you look for love or do you look for someone who you will be happy being stuck with? Oh my gosh, yeah. I, I love any YouTube uh, deep dive, but also I went to grad school for six years. So literally this is like absolutely my shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you haven't watched either of those creators, definitely do because you would love them. That being said, what are your recommendations this week? Well, um, I'm going to admit my prejudice and say that uh, my uh, supplements for this week are just in deference to my absolute obsessive fan feelings for the director, Joe Wright, who um, <laughs> created the 2005 adaptation. I've been a fan of his since he made this film. And I think the first time I saw Atonement in theaters, I literally sobbed. I was 16 <laughs> years old. It helped me fall in love with film. Um so I want to recommend, actually, uh, I mean, besides going to see his new Cyrano de Bergerac adaptation, uh, which I'm certain is absolutely incredible, um, I have no doubts, um, I'm actually going to recommend checking out his 2012 adaptation of another literary classic, Anna Karenina, uh, one of my favorite books of all time, also mm. starring Keira Knightley. It is just a stunning example of how he uses mise-en-scene and high concept, gorgeous visuals to really tell you a story about the world of a great novel. I mean, he is just, I think, a master of adaptation. And I think you're going, you have already seen that in his 2005 Pride and Prejudice. If you haven't already, you should see it in his Anna Karenina. And I have no doubt, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm certain he's doing the same damn thing in Cyrano. And I <laughs> cannot wait to see it. So I bow down to my master of adaptation, Joe Wright. 
All right. Well, folks, I hope that you enjoyed our conversation about Pride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Let us know what you thought in the comments. We'd love to hear from you and definitely tune in in the next few weeks to hear our thoughts on other Regency era stories that may or may not include very popular Netflix series. Stay tuned. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcom killjoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See See you you next time. time.